Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about um, the legal planning for after you've gotten a dementia diagnosis. We know, you know, when people get diagnosed, they're probably not thinking about legal issues right off the bat. The uh, shock of a diagnosis is bad enough, um, but there are certain things you should consider. Um, and we thought we would go to an expert today to talk about this and really understand uh, how we should be thinking from diagnosis uh, through the course of living with dementia. So I'm very pleased to have with us uh, today, Mary Jo Broussard Spire. She is an elder um, attorney. Um, she she really deals with a lot of planning, elder planning issues. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Mary Jo. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Deborah. So let, let's just start by defining um, elder uh, planning. You know, you, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, really specialize in elder law and estate planning. Um, what does that cover exactly? So elder law is an umbrella and underneath it are various areas of law. And the most popular ones, the ones that I deal with day in and day out, are certainly creating or updating an estate plan, dealing with incapacity planning, helping people determine where they're next going to live when they go into maybe a continuing care retirement community or an assisted living community, helping them review those contracts and understand what they say and what they're getting into. I also help um, families review long-term care insurance contracts and get them ready for the claim process and what that will require. And then finally, one of my biggest areas that I help families through and clients through is the Medicaid planning and Medicaid application process. So Medicaid is a government benefit that, that helps subsidize the cost of long-term care. It has functionality and financial eligibility standards that must be met. And I help my clients navigate through that system to plan for it. And then when that time arrives to actually apply for the benefits. Okay. And what we're going to get to that because I can't tell you how many times we hear about the headaches of navigating the system of, of Medicaid. Um, so I, I want to come to that, but just a little bit later. Um, first, really what I want to address right now is, you know, you heard me say earlier, I am, you know, we, many people who receive that diagnosis, whether it's Alzheimer's or a different type of dementia, it's shocking. You know, there's a lot of emotional, um, just shock to get over before you actually think about the practicalities. So really what I want to do is understand what should we be thinking about early on? Um, you've just got that diagnosis. A lot of these conversations that have to do with legal planning are pretty sensitive issues. They are sensitive issues, but they're so vitally important to navigating through the world after you get the dementia diagnosis. And so the, the first thing I want to impress upon everybody is that you really need to deal with the legal aspects 
as soon as possible. You need to put an estate plan in place. Remember, dementia is a progressive condition. The fact that you've been diagnosed with dementia does not mean that you lack capacity to establish or change your existing estate plan. It just means that as it progresses, you may start to lose that capacity over time. So you need to address it as soon as possible. And what is an estate plan? I mean, that's gonna be your will. What happens to your stuff? Who inherits it after you die? That's kind of a simple way to put it, but true. And then ever important are those incapacity planning documents. You need to have a financial power of attorney in place with an agent named who you trust and a healthcare power of attorney in place with an agent named that you trust. Okay, but I, I wanna go back to that because I, I actually still, even though I have a mom with Alzheimer's disease, I don't really, you know, a, a lot of, my sister's a lawyer, so she deals with a lot of this, but technically when you are diagnosed, let's say you've been to the doctors and the doctor says, gives you the official Alzheimer's disease diagnosis, at what point are you deemed not able to make some of these legal decisions? I mean, you know, Alzheimer's is a long disease. We can, you know, it can be a, a 10, uh, 15 year journey in some cases. And so what does that all mean? At what point are you able to say, and who, who makes that decision, whether or not you can make these decisions? Okay, it is a very gray area. I, you're going to be more frustrated than getting your ans your uh, that question answered. Capacity is really a moving target, particularly when you're dealing with someone that has dementia. But testamentary capacity, that is the capacity that is legally necessary to create or change a will to create or change an estate plan, including powers of attorney, one must have testamentary capacity. Testamentary capacity was established in the courts back in the 1800s, I think it was 1870. Hasn't changed and it's still as gray as it ever was, but there are four tasks that someone must be able to understand in order to have testamentary capacity. And it's actually a pretty low standard. So what they are is they have to understand that they're creating a will. They need to know what a will is and that they're making or changing it. They need to understand the relationship they have with the family members or other people that are affected by that will. They need to know who the beneficiaries of that will are, the natural objects of their bounty. That's what we call them under the law. They need to understand what their property is. That doesn't mean they need to have a spreadsheet with the interest they earned last year and what the required minimum distribution is on their IRA. They need to have a general understanding. Yes, I have an investment account. I have a house. I've got a bank account with my daughter. That's often the case. 
Um, and then they need to be able to tell me or their lawyer what they want to happen with their property when they pass away. They might not even know the day of the week, but they might be able to actually have that conversation. In fact, most of the time that is the case. And we're always assessing capacity as lawyers, just through informal assessments, just through communicating with our clients. So capacity is, it's not simple. There's not a uniform standard that we all follow. There's not a checklist. It really is communicating with your client. And if you're not sure, getting a formal assessment from a medical professional who understands the tasks associated with testamentary capacity. Right. So we have a question coming in on the on the house um, topic. Um, this is from a viewer saying, I take care of my mom. Um, she's three and a half years into Alzheimer's. Um, I need to get her house in someone else's name just in case I can't take care of her in the future. I don't know where to begin to do that. Um, but and she has power of attorney. She says, I have power of attorney. So, you know, there's a couple things, and I'm assuming she's talking about she needs to get the house into someone else's name because she doesn't want it to be counted as an asset for Medicaid. Is that what we're talking about? Or I'm not sure. If she's listening, um, she can she can write in there, but yeah, I'm not sure. So, you know, it may be that she just doesn't want the house to have to be probated after her mom passes away. We're not even thinking about Medicaid. And there are, there are things you need to be careful with when you're dealing with real property. And often people will come to me and say, you know, I'm gonna just gift my house to my kids. I'm gonna get it out of my name so that I know they have it. And when I die, it doesn't have to go through probate. Nobody cares that it's not in my will, it's already theirs. Not a great option from a tax perspective because when you are gifted a piece of real estate, your basis in that real estate goes back to the price that the person that gifted it to your parent, for instance, that your dad, mom and dad bought the property. They might have bought it for $50,000 back in the 70s. And then, so now your basis in that pro property is $50,000. If you sell it for $1.5 you got to pay capital gains tax on that profit. That's a hefty tax bill. If you had inherited that property from your parents in a will, your basis gets stepped up to the value of the property on the date that they died. And so if you sell it soon thereafter, there's no capital gains tax. So be careful transferring property until you understand all the ramifications. I don't yeah. know if she, she, the way she wanted me to, but. Well, she added that she doesn't want to lose the house and that um, she doesn't want probate. There's no will. So there's few issues there. <laughs> So um, sometimes people that, um, and again, it's very state specific and you need to have the totality of the circumstances. So I'm gonna say this probably several times tonight. I'm not giving specific legal advice because 
that could get me into a lot of trouble. Yeah. I'm just giving you some general thoughts to explore with an elder law attorney or an estate planning attorney. Um, so if you want to protect the house, but you still want that step up in basis, um, we often do what's called a life estate deed. Sometimes they're called ladybird deeds in other um, states. In Maryland, it's called a life estate deed. And you're, you can convey the house to remainder owners, people that will automatically inherit upon the death of the life estate owner. So mom, through the power of attorney, would convey um, the property to her children in equal shares and retain a life estate. That means she can be in the property throughout her entire life. But when she dies, the moment she dies, that house is owned by the remainder owners by operation of law, no need for probate. And that's kind of like putting a beneficiary designation on a house. Um, and it often works, not all the time. There's pros and cons, but that could be an avenue to explore with an attorney. Okay, so, and another question has come in um, saying, all of my husband's assets are owned jointly with me or in partnerships with me and my sisters. How will this affect his ability to qualify for a care for care in a facility if we get to that point? So if you're in a facility and you want Medicaid, which is that governmental benefit, it's not Medicare, which is health insurance. Medi and, and Medicare is 65 yeah. and up, right? And Medicaid is, is, is a wider band. Yes, Medicaid um, can, can cover many age groups. There's different buckets, different types of Medicaid. Long-term care Medicaid in a nursing home, typically, not always, we're talking about someone that's 65 and older. Not always, but we're speaking generally here. <clears throat> if he's in a nursing home and he is married, okay, there are things that can be done to protect the majority of the assets for the community spouse. This idea that you must impoverish both of you before your husband can receive Medicaid in a nursing home is not true. Yes, people would like for us to believe that, just like you know they like for us not to take tax deductions if we're not smart enough to know about them. But written into Medicaid law, particularly when it comes to a married couple, is the tendency to allow for protection and preservation of assets through different processes for the spouse that's still in the community and needs to live in the community and thrive in the community um, and have the funds to afford to live in the community. So um, I can't you know, go through each specific thing. But what I can tell you is that you should talk to an elder law attorney and understand what your options are. And I'm gonna tell you this about elder law. It's confusing, particularly with Medicaid. And you're gonna to go to the elder law attorney and when you leave that first consultation, your head is going to be spinning. You have got to sit with it. 
You have got to go back again and hear what they have to say. Um, yep. And I know that costs money and not all of us have that kind of money. So then you got to get creative. Maybe go to that consult and get the notes and then go to your local courthouse library and ask the librarian to tell you about some publications that could help you understand what you've just been told. The librarian in the law, in the courthouse, in the law library is just a huge resource. So, um, you know, sometimes we have to think outside the box about how to understand it, but you're not going to understand it day one. In fact, you're going to be frustrated and you're probably going to be angry. So, I, I just have to tell you that um, we get on being patient, we get a, a heaps of comments about Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, spending your assets down and things. People are really confused. And the main story we hear, if you look at the common threads, it is, I, I spent days on a phone waiting to talk to someone. And when I finally talked to someone, I learned we have to really spend down our assets. Otherwise, you know, Medicaid won't kick in unless we're at a certain level where, you know, people are talking about spending down their IRAs and, and all of this. Now, what you're saying is that's not true. So what that tells me is there is misinformation getting out there. I mean, and, and these are unrelated people who have made comments who are, are, are talking the same tune. So I don't know exactly who they're talking to, if it's some kind of hotline or maybe it's a, a county phone system. Um, a couple things I want to say. You're not going to be able, I mean, you're not going to qualify for Medicaid and be able to keep all of your money. It's, it's, not, it's not that rosy. <laughs> but you can qualify for Medicaid, particularly if you're married and even if you are single and preserve a significant amount of your assets. Legally, it is in the law. You're not doing anything wrong. I mean, there is a feeling like, oh, am I pulling, you know, a slim shady on somebody? No, it is in the law. Um, the other thing is you need to Keep your ears open. I can give you one resource. So, you know, the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, NALA, N-A-E-L-A, -E we call ourselves NALA, they have a whole section on their website for lay people, potential clients, and you can search for a lawyer where you live that is committed to elder law and understanding Medicaid. And, you know, I don't know any lawyers that make you wait on a phone before they can talk to you. Now, they probably will charge for the consult and you're going to have to do your due diligence and maybe call several to see who's the most affordable or who you get a good vibe from on the phone. But it will be worth it. A good elder law attorney can save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Absolutely. We do it every day. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and like you said earlier, it's like so complicated. There's so many steps to this that we're not going to cover it today. You know, I wish it was easy as like the, these, ten, these are the 10 things you need to know, right? It, it really doesn't. And there's 
a lot of different factors um, that you have to consider. Absolutely. But um, I wanted to talk about um, really um, a, a more difficult topic, which is towards the end of this journey um, with, with Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about getting a plan in place early on. Is there a point where things are just too late? Um, is there to, you know, have you been as, as a lawyer, have you, have you seen that where just it was too late to really change anything because the person's capacity was um, severely compromised? Yes. And what does I that look like? It looks like confusion, inability to discuss what they're getting ready to do, not understanding that there's the will is sitting in front of them, not understanding um, that they're getting ready to sign a healthcare power of attorney or advanced medical directive, looking around, waiting for someone to fill in the blanks for them. Um, you, you, you kind of know it when you see it. And again, every client is very different. Um, and it's so disheartening because you know you need to get them to that end result. And, um, but you can't do it if they don't know what they're doing. And if they don't know what they're doing and there are still things that need to be done for them, that's when you have to turn to a guardianship um, and that's unfortunate, but sometimes happens. So it's the person, I mean, the, the very first thing everyone should do at the very least is get a power of attorney, right? Um, from the yes, beginning. if you said to me, I'm only paying for one thing, what would it be? I'd say, please get a power of attorney. Please. Yeah. And, and if I had to choose between the two, a financial power of attorney. Um, you don't, the financial power of attorney has everything to do with your money and things that your agent can do for you that might impact your money. And then the healthcare power of attorney, which some states call an advanced medical directive, that has everything to do with your body and discussions with your medical providers and medical decisions. Um, the financial power of attorney is really the ticket for your agent to navigate through the financial matters that will impact your life when you no longer have capacity. And we all know that if people don't think they're going to get paid or people don't think that they're going to have a valid contract, they're not going to deal with you. Right. Um, so the financial power of attorney, in my humble opinion, is if we had to pick one document, would be the most important. Okay. Um, another question that's come up in is how does one go about using a long-term care insurance for part-time in-home dementia care? The agent says there are five criteria to be met, but we may never reach all, all five. So that's the problem that people run across in long-term care contracts is they think mom or dad or my wife or my husband needs that that companion care that in-home care now all i got to do is pick up the phone tell the long-term care insurance carrier how bad he is and i'll and the you know the benefits will start coming in 
they're very persnickety, persnickety about when they start paying benefits. They have a criteria in the contract that you must meet and you need to be prepared to meet that criteria when you're dealing with them. I mean, often when I'm working with my clients and we're getting ready to submit a claim for long-term care benefits, we'll actually role play. And I will pretend like I'm you know, on the phone giving them an assessment about their condition and what they can expect, what kind of questions. And most long-term care insurance companies will want to see your doctor's written certification and maybe your doctor's notes, but they'll want to do their own evaluation as well. Um, so you can't ever be over-prepared before you submit that claim. Just because you have long-term care insurance policy doesn't mean the benefits are going to come to you when you say, I'm ready. You have to prove you meet the criteria as it's outlined in the contract. Right. Uh, okay, another question is, do you need a financial power of attorney if all assets are jointly owned by the spouse? So having all assets jointly owned by the spouse certainly makes it easier. And, and um, But it's not just about accessing the actual assets. It's also about being able to do things that impact the principal's finances. And the principal is the the eventual incapacitated person. Of course, they're not incapacitated when they sign it. Um, so yeah, you might be able to access the bank account to pay for the uh, home health care, but who's signing the home health care contract? If your mom, can't sign that contract or your dad can't sign that contract, then if you're left signing that contract, you're as liable as they are to pay for that home health care. And you don't want to take on that liability. So powers of attorney do a whole lot more than just allow you to access the money. They also allow the agent, it could be a spouse, it could be the children, to protect themselves from any liability and to enter into contracts, purchase things, um, change your address at the post office, deal with the MVA. Um, it's not just about accessing the money. And just, I mean, to, for, for one kind of follow up on that issue, um, this person who has power attorney over her mom says she has the mentality right now of about a two-year-old, um, can I, is it too late for me to put together a will? I don't know. I'm thinking that it is probably too late. Remember, testamentary capacity is a lower standard. Some people are some surprised at how specific it is. They just have to know that they are creating a will and what a will is, who they're naming in it, who's affected by the will, what their property is, and how they want it to be distributed after they've died. But it would be hard to have that conversation with a two-year-old. Mm -hmm. And thinking that is probably too late. 
Yeah, it's it's and that's just another argument, right, for for lining everything up um, early and making and also just the fact that you want your loved one to be uh, a decision maker in this process. Right. You don't want to have to guess. Um, so, you know, I think it, it is critically important to to understand all of this um, at the very beginning or even before diagnosis. Right. I mean, ideally. yes, I mean, you know, I tell everyone they should have an estate plan, even when they turn 21, they should have an estate plan. Um, you know, my kids turned 18 and I did powers of attorney for them. But, you know, I'm a nut about those kind of things. But um, once you've gotten the diagnosis, you need to act on the legal matters. Now, you know, the will is going to control those assets that actually become will assets after someone dies. But you may have assets, your mom may have assets that could be distributed after her death because she jointly owned them with someone. And so then the surviving owner would receive those assets by operation of law. So, um, you know, sometimes couples come to me and they're so concerned because they're not going to be able to do a will. That ship has sailed. There's no capacity. And then when we really drill down on their assets, they own everything jointly. And nobody has a crystal ball, but it is more likely that the Alzheimer's spouse will die before the other spouse. And in which case, then everything would just automatically flow to that other spouse, even though there's not a will, because they jointly owned the assets. Well, just, you just pose another question. What if the healthy, healthy or non-dementia um, diagnosed spouse dies first? What does that mean? So then everything's gonna flow to the Alzheimer's spouse. Yeah. And what do we do? Um, you know, there's things that you could, still could do under that circumstance to protect those assets and have the Alzheimer's spouse still receive Medicaid. Or let's say Medicaid was never in the picture. If they died with those assets and they were never able to create a will, the state will create a will for them. It's called intestate succession. It's dying without a will. And there's a whole, you know, list of who inherits. It's typically your spouse, your parents, your children. It depends on the state, the order. So they'll make a will for you. But how are you going to access if she doesn't have a power of attorney? Let's say mom got all that and she doesn't have a power of attorney. You're going to have to get a guardian in order to access her money if there was no financial power of attorney during mom's life. Okay, well, Mary Jo Broussard Spire, thank you so much. Um, I think, went by so fast. <laughs> well, and I, I think you can tell by the number of questions, this is a badly needed area of clarification um, and, and, and so complex for, for many people, but you gave us some good advice. And I know it's not intended as specific legal advice, but in general, um, things that we should consider and also um, some of the resources um, that you 
named um, is, is very helpful to the community. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak tonight. I, I really enjoyed it. And I wish all of you a wonderful new year and um, comfort in peace. And you. And um, if you've missed any of this talk, we will um, post it on beingpatient.com. Um, we love having these talks. They're meant to help you. Um, if you want to recommend a talk, just write us at info at beingpatient.com. Um, we have access to a lot of experts. We'll bring them on um, for you uh, to ask questions on specific topics. Um, and if you want to know more about upcoming talks, please sign up for our newsletter. It's um, If you go to beingpatient.com, there is a sign up. You'll see right away to, to get our weekly newsletter to alert you um, um, of upcoming talks, as well as the latest news um, and information that we've put out. So thanks very much for joining us.